Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Major U.S. markets have came off recent lows and the debate on where we are in the business cycle seems to be shifting. On today's show, ETF strategist Etienne Jacques Bouchard shares that it feels like we're in a late cycle environment and he'll note which factors he is paying attention to for the current market environment. With host Quinn Flaherty, manager editorial content, Etienne notes that investing in quality right now versus investing in value has a higher probability of a positive outcome based on this market environment in the past. Among other topics, Etienne also provides an update on the Fidelity All-in-One ETFs. Today's podcast was recorded on August 16th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Etienne, welcome back to Fidelity Connects. How are you doing this morning? Doing very well, Quinn. Thanks for having me. So Etienne, new inflation data is out. And of course, the debate now is where we're at in the cycle and where we go from here. So my first question to you, of course, is what are your thoughts and the market data you're looking at and reviewing? Where did you think we're at in the market cycle right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's there's been a, a nice sigh of relief from, from the market with, with regards to the change in direction for inflation because a 7.6% CPI reading now looks a lot better than it would have, say, a year ago. It almost seems like we were, we've were we been in this environment for, for a little while now. It's it's something that's been in focus since the start of the year and probably even going back to, to I'd say, Q3 of, of 2021. That story of, you know, a rising rate environment paired with higher than expected inflation numbers keep on going, going up, going up, going up. Now that we finally have one that's actually going down, albeit still relatively high, it seems like, once again, that, that sigh of relief in the markets. To us, you know, on, on the ETF side, you know, from, from the data that we're gathering, it does seem fairly clear that we are in, in some type of late cycle environment. That's something that is characterized by slowing, you know, slowing growth, you know, obviously eventually rolling over of, of inflation expectations, which, which has started to happen. If you look a little bit for, further out, like the five year and, and, and uh, even one year inflation expectations, basically the market kind of starting to realize that all the work that's being done by, by central banks our team is is looking at the impact of higher borrowing costs on i guess you know future economic activity comparing new orders uh so as you know from the ism survey in the us with the 24 month change in the 10 year advanced 18 months so obviously it takes some time to materialize so consumers and businesses generally change their habits rather slow but we're already starting to see new orders fall quite drastically coming around significantly lower in July than, 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 than most expected. And that really has to do with, with the cost of money. So that's one thing that we're definitely keeping an eye out on. Then, you know, when you look, start to look more like market fundamentals, I mean, it's going to be looking at earnings, which have been quite strong. But one of the key metrics that we're targeting, especially to put it into a factor perspective, is where are margins going? And we expect those to continue to, to, to kind of compress as the, those inflationary pressures from the past 12 months 
kind of get price, not priced in, but obviously like uh, digested, if you will, by, by businesses and consumers. So those are some things that we're keeping an eye on, but it definitely feels like a late cycle type environment right now. With that being said, Etienne, perhaps in late cycle, new orders perhaps slowing, but inflation data, inflation may be curbing a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Fidelity Factors. Every time we have you on Fidelity Connects, there's always new storylines about the various factors at play here. From your perspective, when it comes to our ETF products and these factors, which of these factors are you really paying a close attention to, especially now as we enter or are in the late cycle? As we go through a business cycle and where we find ourselves now in that kind of slowing growth to stall speed, factors like quality and momentum, as well as low volatility, tend to be factors that do well. One that we're definitely keeping an eye out of, this is something that I've done quite a bit more research on recently with, with a white paper that we've put together is, is high quality businesses. So those that you know will display higher higher margins, higher return on invested capital. So they're able to generate cash and then reinvest it at a higher rate than their peers. That also definitely display you know lower standard deviation of earnings, so they can navigate a tougher environment a little bit better than than the, the you know say the average business. So those are the types of companies that have historically done well throughout the cycle. Uh, not to say that there's other things that you know that doesn't mean that other things can't work, uh, but on a relative basis, those are places that generally are in their periods of you know alpha. That's when they're generating alpha the most is in that late cycle slash recessionary period and. It's extremely hard to, you know, we were just talking two minutes ago that, that, that we feel that we're in the late cycle, but I mean, what are the going to be the effects of all these things that we're, that we're talking about? So like, obviously inflation, we expect margins to come down. We expect new orders to come down. We expect consumers to react and start maybe spending a little bit less because the cost of goods and services is higher. But will that lead us to a soft landing? Will that lead us to an actual, you know, more persistent, you know, growth contraction, like a, a deeper recession? It's, it's really hard to tell. So for us, it's about making the highest probability allocation in a portfolio. So like if I invest in quality right now versus investing in value, you know, I'm giving myself a better probability of a positive outcome with something that typically does well in this environment. But once again, if we do see, for example, you know, inflation come down and, you know, the Fed not necessarily having to cut rates and just leaving them as they are right now, or, you know, we basically get that soft landing in which growth doesn't stall. You know, we could find ourselves pushing back to to, the, to a mid-cycle type environment where, you know, there, there's moderate growth, but there's still growth. But right now, that's kind of the base case. And, you know, the the lower probability or the end, ends of the bell curve would be a, a, a deeper recession and, and, you know, kind of a reset, a complete reset. We're, we're kind of in that growth stall period, we feel like. And Chen, you mentioned high quality, high quality factor. You talked a little bit about value. From a valuation perspective right now in the markets, we've had obviously a bit of a sell-off in the last few weeks and months, now a bit of a rally. From a valuation perspective, where is the high quality factor? Is it considered kind of cheap or overpriced at the moment? What are you seeing? That's a great question. And it's hard to say. The way that we like to look at it is on a relative basis based on its historical average relative to the broad benchmark. So Quality stocks generally trade pretty much at par with the bench, like a benchmark index. So for the U.S., it'd be like the Russell 1000 that we look at. And, you know, our high, our U.S. high quality ETFs would be trading historically at about 0.98 times the broad benchmark from a PE perspective. So price earnings. And right now it's trading at around the, about 0.95. So it's at a slight discount, albeit it's pretty rare that we do get a discount in high quality stocks. So it's actually in the bottom quartile of its historical valuations. High quality 
being it was a little bit pricier to start the year was actually much more negatively impacted when we saw rates going up. I guess, you know, valuations are, are some type of, it's a way to see sensitivity to moves in rates, similar to what you would see with duration uh, with bonds. So obviously, you know, anybody who's invested in growth stocks going into the year, obviously, you know, it's, it's been a tougher area to invest given the valuations that were that were in place there and, and, and discounting future cash flows further and further out from, from a time standpoint. So there, I guess your discount rate has a bigger impact the longer you look at. So if you look at high quality right now, it's gone from about the 75th percentile to the 25th percentile. So it's not like a screaming buy on valuation, but it's definitely a good correction that we've seen. Things that are extremely cheap right now, value, which is you know quite surprising given the relative performance it's had. It's also due to the fact that we feel that earnings have, have held up very well. And if you look at places like energy, for example, are, just at, are at cycle highs from a free cash flow standpoint and from an earnings standpoint. Uh, so that's kind of uh, helped uh, on the valuation side there. But let's just say quality from a valuation perspective, it's, it's not an issue anymore, right? Like you're not overpaying for these businesses like you were maybe going into 2019, 2020 when they were off a two, three year kind of run there. We feel now it's it's more adequate from a valuation perspective, not to count the not to discount the fact that earnings revisions actually has been really good on the quality side. So we've actually seen the businesses that we bucket into high quality actually have positive revisions, while other factors are actually have negative revisions, like small caps, for example, you know, which have been underperforming so far this year. And we're just wrapping up kind of earnings season. And I think a logical follow up question to what you just mentioned is looking at high quality. What is the actual definition of high quality, especially here at Fidelity? Because we do mm-hmm. have a couple of different mandates in the high quality factor. Probably best for audience to have a good understanding of how we define it. And, and I'll say we by like our ETF team, because I, I you know, even, you know, we talk to, to our active managers and, and those that focus on, you know, quality, quality at a reasonable price, which is kind of like a GARP approach a little bit, or you can have, you know, just, you know, if, if I if I look at the portfolio of, an, of a manager like a Will Danoff, for example, displays very high quality from the from the metrics that we look at. But the way that we construct our ETF is using three main metrics. I kind of alluded to them earlier, but I'll, I'll go through them again just to make sure that we're that we're all uh, on track here is the, the three metrics that we score each company in our investment universe on is firstly the free cash flow margin. So the one year free cash flow margin, how much free cash flow is a company able to generate? Are they profitable? That allows them to not only you know manage their their debt load, it also allows them to invest. It also allows them to you know to to, to produce and, and start new go- or offer new goods and services. So basically, do you know R and D, do cap, uh, pay, pay some capex, etc. So that's one of the key uh, key metrics. The second one is the return on invested capital. So once they've generated that cash, are their business initiatives so their operations you know, profitable? And are they creating economic value with those with those operations? And the return on invested capital has historically been a really strong metric to find, you know, those kind of compounders uh, or long-term leaders, those companies that are able to keep some type of moat versus their peers. So those that's another way that we can kind of characterize high quality companies. It's, it's those that are kind of tough to lose their competitive edge or that have some type of edge versus their their peers, whether it's just because they're more efficient or it's because they have something or they offer something that their competitors just can't at that price point, for example. And the last metric, which is particularly important when we find ourselves in a recessionary period, and that's why I think, you know, obviously high quality does well in those two lighter parts of the cycle, 
is we also look at the five-year standard deviation of, of cash flows or earnings per share. So we're trying to find businesses that, you know, through a five-year period won't have a dramatically different margins or just all out uh, earnings potential. So you can think of sectors like, for example, energy, which is right now generating a lot of free cash flow and has a higher return on invested capital. Unfortunately, it doesn't really, it's, it's not really stable over a five-year period. So it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword right now where some sectors look really good on, like the cyclical sectors look good on one side, but then that's kind of holding them back to say, we still need businesses that are stable if things get tougher. And that's something that's more typical of a low volatility factor historically. Like, right, we want companies that have very stable and boring businesses. So we're looking for not only a lower beta, but also a low standard deviation in their earnings. So th those would be the main ways to characterize it. And Chen, you just mentioned low volatility and wanted to ask you a little bit about that. How mm -hmm. is the low volatility factor performing? And do you have any thoughts on the factor going forward? Well, it's doing quite well. And, I, you know, obviously... The the VIX is 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 a tricky uh, is a tricky metric I think. Um, albeit it, it would say that it's a relatively low vol environment. I just feel like sentiment is fairly. It feels like investors aren't completely convinced of one direction or the other, which when there's uncertainty like that, actually lends really well to those defensive sectors. The issue right now, obviously, is that they're they're fairly expensive, right? There's been uh, they've done well from a performance standpoint and. They're just trading at a, at a sizable premium right now, about 1.12 times. If we're looking at the U.S. market, and I'll, I'll keep it to the U.S. market is easier from a factor perspective because we, we can apply it to Canada and international markets. But across the board, actually, on a geographic perspective, low volatility companies are expensive. So you're paying a premium to get safety, which historically is, real, is pretty much the case. It usually trades about one, one times the, the benchmark. Right now, it's at 1.12 times. So that's something that, you know, from an entry point perspective, you know, could hinder a little bit. But just from, you know, if, if I own like defensive low vol businesses, it is entering that period where, you know, when you see earnings start to slow down on the more cyclical side, when you see uh, more uncertainty from a macro perspective, it, it is a factor that does well. Like your overweight sectors like utilities, telecoms, staples, you know, kind of those more dull sectors. Uh, so for, for investors that are looking for, that you know market like return over over a multi year period, but want to capture less downside and you know uh, lower beta, it it, it is a, a good factor I think you know for the say the next twelve months. But if if we do see signs of a kind of bottoming out in in the business cycle, it does tend to lag in the early and mid cycle like it did in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty like the beginning parts of twenty twenty one, and now it's really kind of picked back up as we've seen you know the, this uncertainty if you will remain in, in equity market. I know I, I do want to get to our Fidelity all-in-one ETFs, but there's a question about the size factor. And the question is, yeah. can you explain how we define size? Are these small caps? Or when we talk about the size factor, are these simply large caps? Yeah, that's a great. It is confusing. Eh? We should just write, we should just write exactly what it is instead of just putting size. It's not a factor that we currently offer in, in an ETF format here at Fidelity Canada. We use it because it gives us an indication of the way small caps do. So it's actually somewhat of a, you know, it would be kind of more benchmark to the Russell 2000. It's a way to equal weight stocks, more or less, to get a small cap bias in a portfolio. So to take, you know, kind of if you if you look at a typical passive investment, you're basing it off market cap and you are getting more exposure to the bigger companies. We're trying to take that out. That's basically what the size factor would be. And, you know, albeit we don't, you know, like I said, we don't offer that type of strategy. It does give us an indication of how small caps more broadly are doing, which hasn't been so well right now, which is, once again, a pretty typical of a late 
late cycle environment, uh, given that they are more sensitive to not only like a domestic economy, but also in general will be a little bit more volatile on the earnings front, will be a little bit more, you know, when things get tough, you know, their, their access to capital can be a bit tougher than large caps also. So whether that's the cost of, of borrowing or just the cost of like finance, you know, the, the, the price at which they're doing equity, uh, equity raises can be more expensive than say large caps. So to, to answer the question, size, small caps, not large caps. Awesome. Thanks, Etienne. So we've talked about high quality, we've talked about low volatility, and we did touch on size factor. But for you know, perhaps many advisor clients, there's really not one factor that they perhaps want to focus on. So let's talk a little bit about our Fidelity all-in-one ETFs. I'm super excited about this kind of a range of ETF products. Maybe just give our audience today a bit of an overview about the all-in-one ETFs and their composition. Yeah, no, it's 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 really happy to have these products now out. It's the culmination of a lot of years' work for a lot of people on the ETF team, ETF team, excuse me, at Fidelity Canada. So what these are are kind of turnkey solutions, portfolios that offer a balanced multi-asset class approach. And, you know, ranging for every or the majority of, of, of investors. So we have, you know, a version that's the all-in-one conservative available in an ETF and a fund, which is important to, to, to remind all of our audiences that a lot of our ETFs are actually available in Series B and Series F. So it's, you know, it is something that's, that can find its way on your product shelf. These portfolios range from 60% fixed income and 40% equities all the way to 100% equity. And I say 100% equity, but caveat, we actually include also a third asset class, which is quite unique to the marketplace. We include a small allocation to cryptocurrency via our Bitcoin ETF to the range of 1% to 3% dependent on the risk profile. So a really unique portfolio with, you know, as an objective is to, in the long term, benefit and harvest the long term alpha that these various factors can generate. Because if we look over a 20, 25 year period, like, you know, every single one of those factors has displayed, you know, has significant uh, evidence showing that it provides alpha relative to a broad index. Now, it doesn't all, it doesn't do it throughout the cycle necessarily. Like we see value, value is not going to outperform through the whole cycle, but it's going to have enough time in the sun where if you look at, at the end of the cycle, it should have outperformed its broad benchmark. So if we do that and we think about it that way for momentum, value, quality and low vol, which are the four factors that we use in the all-in-ones, if we can tack on between 1.1 to about 2.6%, which is over 30-year period, the range for each factor of, of annualized alpha, if we can compound that over time by investing in the four various factors across three geographies, or much more than three geographies, but we bucket into international Canada and US, so it's global product. If we can capture 1.1 to 2.5 you know, points to 6%, you know, minus a small fee, we're going to be able to compound with these ETF portfolios at a faster pace than, say, a purely passive approach or index-based approach. So that's the idea. Obviously, the combination of factors on top of that you know, kind of alpha potential is also we're thinking about risk management, right? So having factors like value and quality that actually have a negative excess return correlation. So when one's outperforming the index, usually the other one is underperforming. So combining them is going to give you, you know, great diversification and able to kind of capture both the success of both of those factors over time. So really great products. We're really happy with, you know, with the way that they've, they've done so far. Great, great turnkey portfolio. Simple. I'm really interested to know, Chen, with the changing market conditions that we've all experienced in the last few months, talk about the diversification of these suite of all-in-one ETFs. How have they performed given you know, what's happened in the last few months? 
No, they've done they've done quite well. I mean, as 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 advertised, the idea here. I mean, obviously, one thing that's you know, I mentioned the the Bitcoin allocation, one to three percent. Thankfully, it was one to three percent, and that's also the idea behind these portfolios is to not be taking on excessive risk to 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 try to. We're not, we're not trying to chase performance here. We want to have a really strong sharp ratio, and so far, that's been the case relative to you know, once again, like the way that we compare is to like just looking at like a sixty forty, for example, with our balanced solution of like just just indices right bundled together and they've really uh delivered and and one of the key reasons for that is the fact that we have value in low vol right like those two factors have done better year to date well all of a sudden you know since mid-june now quality is the one that's leading the way right we've been talking about quality for about four or five months but timing that whole cycle is extremely difficult we have Dozens, if not way more than that, we've got like 30 people, you know, trying to figure out where we are in that chart. Well, the fact of combining all those factors takes away that job. Like we are, you know, constantly rebalancing among the factors, making sure, you know, that, that, that you're well positioned, well diversified, because, you know, when you think about it, you know, you always want to own that best factor. It's, it's really challenging to do. Like, so we all want diversification when it's a bit too late to be diversified. So the way that these portfolios are built and, and the, 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 I guess, uh, frame of mind we had was to always have that diversification and to capture the long-term benefits, not to look at the short-term tactical place. Cause this is not a tactical mandate, right? Like we're not making calls on a daily basis saying, okay, well, right now we like quality. Does that mean we want to take away value and only overweight quality? No. You know, or if we get to like a, a much more volatile environment, you know, well, maybe we should sell some value to buy low vol. Well, we're not making those calls. We're making sure that we have some type of a neutral mix. We let the factors drift a little bit and benefit from momentum because individual factors, not the momentum factor itself, but factors as, as a whole can display some momentum. Like when value does well, it usually does well for, you know, it's not like a month. It, it usually lasts a certain period of time. So we want to let that drift and then we rebalance at the end of the year to make sure we start fresh. Excellent. Thanks, Etienne. Thoughts on energy and specifically the composition of energy in the energy sector within some of our factors and ETF portfolios. Wondering if you can touch on that. That is a great question. And it is probably the most trivial sector right now because you're getting you're getting very different signals, right? Like it's not a sector that typically does well when we are in a yeah, I guess economy that is beginning to show signs of slowing and likely will continue to slow as once again, that the, the higher rates, the ex, you know, expectations and just economy, you know, st activity starts to slow. But at the same time, you're looking at it, valuations are still great. Free cash flow margins are great. And, you know, return on equity, return on invested capital. Like these businesses are making money for the first time in a little bit of, in quite a while at to this, to this extent anyways. So it, it's kind of a conflicting signals that we're getting like macro says no fundamentals say yes do so you kind of have to pick your point or which side you want to take from a long-term perspective you know there are still some structural issues with regards to supply and i think that has to do a lot with you know the the environmental and the esg turn that you know governments are taking and, and that we are taking as as you know individuals so you know either Supply is constrained because we don't want to make new investments in energy. So that means that current assets are worth more because there's just going to be less competitors, if you will. And at the same time, you're getting a whole electrification, you know, process, which will create, you know, there's still going to be energy demand in the short term and long term likely starts to deteriorate. But it doesn't mean that energy stocks are a bad investment 
because of what I was mentioning with regards to the value of their assets. So it's a long answered question to say, you know, it, it really is an interesting one right now. It's, Absolutely. you know, obviously overweight in dividend, it's overweight in value. It's overweight in Canadian quality, which is quite surprising. The last time that was the case was in 2003, 2004, when, you know, commodities in, in Canada did well relative to like the U.S. market. So does that mean that we're going to get that same type of run going forward? You know, it's very tough to tell, but I actually, we're, we're rebalancing a majority of our factory ETFs in three days. And, and I'm quite interested to see if it does fall into that quality bucket. So to stay tuned for those keeping an eye out on it. Very quickly, last question, of course, midway through August, we'll be in the fall in no time. Obviously, we'll all be keeping a close eye on energy based on your comments there. Anything <laughs> else you're looking at in the markets as we get into the fall, especially considering ETFs and our factored investments? I think just from a market perspective is to see the tone of the central banks as we head into the fall. Like if we get two subsequent, you know, sizable drops in inflation, is that going to be enough? And 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 you're seeing also signs of like a, a slowing economy. Is that going to be enough for central banks to say, okay, we've done enough? That could potentially be a very good thing for markets. On the flip side, if inflation is more persistent, and you know, say we we dip for one month and we, and we see a higher number the month after, for 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 whatever you know reason it might it might be, that could be you know on the flip side. So that. You know, just really kind of seeing what central banks and the way that they're going to react in the next few months, because markets are already starting to price in cuts next year. Right. So, you know, maybe we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but that's really what I'm keeping an eye on right now. Etienne, thanks so much for joining us today on Fidelity Connects. Always a pleasure to speak with you and hopefully we'll have you back to talk about some factors in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us. I'm Quinn Flaherty. Thanks for listening to today's Fidelity Connects podcast. For more from Etienne, please check out his podcast episodes, The Fidelity ETF Exchange, hosted monthly within this Fidelity Connects channel. Recent episodes include a Q2 2022 recap and a look at overall portfolio construction. Also, make sure to visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. Thanks again. See you tomorrow.